0: Dear, dear listener. Hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you.
1: In part two of our dialogue with Daniel Schmachtenberger, he delves into the psychological and spiritual roots of our contemporary global crises. And he points out that being in service to our human family and to our beautiful planet are some of the noblest and most important callings of our time. Growing numbers of people waking up to our situation and feeling this calling. And clearly, as Daniel points out, we are in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. The central question of our time is increasingly What can I do? What contribution can I make to alleviate the ocean of suffering and the impending threats? Join us as Daniel explores these supremely important topics.
0: Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Daniel, I have a follow-up question to all this, and I know they, they threw it at Carl Jung, so I'm gonna throw it at you. Do you believe in God?
2: I remember many, many years ago, and I wouldn't phrase it this way any more. this maybe 15 years ago. I wrote a poem called The Atheist Who Writes Love Poems to God. And it was saying, do I believe in God? Not in any God that is believable, meaning that I don't remember where it went, but the idea that what the word belief means is the idea that a proposition about reality actually maps to reality so belief is a thing that can happen inside of propositional logic and propositions have to be formed in semiotics right in in semantics and syntax do i believe that there is some sentences that i can say that define what god is where i would say yes that is a description that I think is both true and comprehensive and you know, adequate. And no, I don't. I think that's why the first verse of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that is speakable is not the eternal Tao. So if you believe in the Tao, you missed the whole fucking thing. <laughs> you can have a outside of semiotics, outside of propositional experience, outside of propositional knowledge, experience of a kind of wordless knowing in a connection to wholeness but you don't then try to reduce that to propositions about the world. So I think there's a lot of people that will have real experiences that are numinous and transcendent and then try to make a belief based on that. And I think that's usually misguided. If I wanted to speak to beliefs, do I think that consciousness is an emergent property of brains? Probably not. Do I think that there are things that don't have brains, including other types of biology and whatever, that might have some qualia, or there is something that it is like to be them? Probably, yes. But I'm holding all this, I say probably, even though I think there's some pretty strong arguments. I think too much certainty about any of these things is really problematic. Do I think that it might not just be biology, but that Anything that self-organizes has some type of interiority or selfness in some kind of pan-psychic type way. Yeah, sure, I do. Do I think that even though each cell in our brain or body is its own self-organizing thing, they come together to make something that is synergistically more than the sum of them taken separately? Yes. Do I think that might be true for, say, universe as a whole or very large things within universe like Galaxies or whatever. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So, do I think that there are types of sentience and types of intelligence that are more deep and vast by far than our imagination can think about? Totally. Do I think that there is the possibility to, in some meaningful ways, connect there and have results come from that connection? Yes. Do I think that there is an inherent sacredness in all that is physically and metaphysically? Yes. I wouldn't reduce all that to saying, I believe in God. I rather think of it
3: as something more respectful than the reduction to a proposition. I get that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But but I was actually just talking with um, a very close friend the other day about
3: an aspect of learning theory. There are certain things that when I learn them, I have to work to implement them as effectively as I can, because I can't not, I just can't not. And, And there are many people
2: who don't have that. They, they learn things and they forget. And they're like, Oh yeah, that was about bummer I forgot, let me get back on path. Or they, there's some different depth of the care about the thing that is of course the result of all the exposure and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, there is something where it is like, actually, like the difference is actually believing there's a God, right? Meaning, and that was the term that I used to just kind of make it simple in which if one actually believes there's a God, then they can go, they can work to perfect themselves, go to a happily die in a holy war, whatever it is, because there is some superordinate thing that is so fucking important that everything else falls in line to that. So there, there is something for me and belief in karma can do that, right? There is something that is like believing in a God that is the ordinating basis of everything for me,
0: but it isn't believing in a God <laughs> and I can't do better with words. Now that, yes, uh, I, I think that's a very sacred, holy answer. I think you handled it really well. And thank you for even, even, Doing that means a lot.
3: Yeah,
1: and beautiful that some of the intimations in your response were about the unknowable mystery of reality, bottomless, fathomless, inconceivable, and to the transconceptual nature of that mystery and actually of life, that the, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao and even more than that any statement we make is you know, is fact can be valuable but is never fully adequate to the reality of anything
2: and to the extent that you think that you even unconsciously even fuzzily think of it as adequate now it's actually harming you yes because now it deadens your perceptions now it creates less you don't see the reality. You see the frame of the reality that you expect to see it in and you stop seeing where that model is inadequate, which means you stop learning because you're now filtering reality through that model because it's convenient. So in that thing, the dance of the Dow and the 10,000 things, there's one part where I say, do atoms exist? I'm like, kind of, kind of, because, and I didn't play with it from the point of view of, is there physicality at all? Or is that, all just an epiphenomenon of consciousness, or is this a simulation? I wasn't even playing with it from that direction. I was just saying, do atoms exist? Well, the periodic table works pretty well. We can actually do atomic level engineering and chemistry pretty well, right? This is a, it's about as good a science as we've got. There's a, a lot of good empirical things regarding atoms. But when I define an atom, the formal definitions will. I, we can do it in terms of the Schrodinger equation or information theory or particle physics or whatever, but we'll say, okay, you got nucleons and you have electrons and you have orbitals and whatever. You can just say where in the periodic table row and column it is and it's an ion or,
3: but does that atom exist without the strong force? Does it exist
2: without electromagnetism? Does it exist without the Higgs field? Does it exist without the gauge bosons that mediate the connections, the gluons and the Higgs boson? It doesn't exist without any of those things. And yet none of them are included in the definition. When we say atom, we take them all for granted. So if I removed those that are not part of the definition, do atoms exist? Nope. So if I want to define an atom adequately, that it actually exists, can I do that? Nope. And (laughs) So, I have to take for granted a transfinite amount of reality to define this thing in a way that is useful, but is it real? Well, mm,
1: kind of. You've walked your way into the Buddhist Shunyata and into the uh, y- Buddhist Hua Yen philosophy of the concealed and the revealed, that any perspective unveils or conceals a universe and simultaneously conceals another one. This is absolutely fascinating. We could go anywhere with this, but I want to, I want to ask you from this this perspective, or these multiple perspectives you're bringing to bear on your on your understanding of of everything. What do you see as some of the deeper, unrecognised, usually unacknowledged causes of the meta crisis? And I'll I'll, ju- I'll just give a little context. And I think one of the beautiful things about the way of the way you appreciate the metacognomy crisis is you're very aware of the traps of reductionism or what I would call the single focus fallacy, which there are three, a, a, fo- a, a single, a single issue fallacy. The, the you know, we're facing global warming. That's it. A single cause fallacy. It's all due to capitalism and the single solution fallacy. So, I love the way your thinking transcends those limitations and, and recognize the traps of reductionism. So, in asking you what you see as some of the deeper causes, I certainly acknowledge that you don't, <laughs> these aren't it, but they are important elements and they're ones that don't often get, don't as often get
3: spoken to. Yeah. Okay. So, the question, as I understood, is our. Are there drivers or causes of the issues we face in the world and of the thing that
2: I sometimes call the metacrisis that we haven't defined here, but I've defined in enough other places if someone is not already familiar, they can check it out, that are not the ones that we usually talk about that are somehow deeper. And I'm going to translate that to, are there things in the inner landscape of people's experience and psyche specifically, which is when we were saying, are there spiritual dimensions or interior dimensions? The reason I want to make the distinction is because I don't know that the term deeper
3: makes sense. Just for quick point of reference, I would not say that I am a physicalist or an
2: idealist in the classic philosophical sense of Physicalist meaning that physics comes first, matter and force fields and third person stuff, and that consciousness emerges from that somewhere. Nor am I an idealist and that consciousness comes first and all of the physics is an emergent property of consciousness, structures of mind or something. I would say that the subjective stuff and the objective stuff, however, you want to think of that. All the words have problems. We could talk about first person, third person, we can talk about the quality and the physics but they are equally fundamental and co-informing, co-arising facets of an integrated reality. And the relationship between them is part of that fundamentality. So I wouldn't say consciousness is deeper than physics to the nature of reality. I think that's a weird kind of dualism still. I think information theory affecting physics has already started to get a lot of people, at least in this realm. Because if you say, okay, well, consciousness stuff is deeper than physics stuff. You're like, well, what is physics stuff? Well, it's like atoms. Atoms are subatomic particles, and subatomic particles are some weird Heisenbergian Schrodinger thing, which seems a lot like some type of pattern of information. It doesn't sound like physics anymore, right? (laughs) And it doesn't necessarily sound as different. It's not like just some dead inert matter, it doesn't sound as different from the consciousness stuff, especially as you start to do a similar dive on what the consciousness stuff is. Because you say, well, is that information processing on some information processing substrate? What, what does that mean? And so in the same way that I wouldn't say consciousness is deeper than physics or the other way around, I wouldn't say that the psychological drivers of the metacrisis are deeper than the technological or the economic ones. I would say that they are co-informing, co-influencing, and that to really address it, there are necessary things that have to happen across each of those areas, and that sufficiency only happens across all of them. I won't belabor the point because we've written and talked about it. We wrote a paper in the Consilience Project called Why Technology is Not Values Neutral, and it's worth people looking at And it shows how
1: yeah, beautiful paper.
2: Yeah. It it shows just a brief overview of the work of Marvin Harris and, and Marshall McLuhan and uh, so many people in the theory of technology of how technologies change the nature of mind and psychology individually and collectively, the nature of culture in ways that are really subtle and not, not obvious. So I, You know, there's always this question of what technologies the world develops and what social systems it develops. Are those the result of the consciousness and values of the people, or the consciousness and the values of the people who are born as babies being conditioned by the world that they're in and the dominant systems and what things happen to be successful? And if the worldview and the technology it creates don't win at war, it just gets wiped out. And so I'm framing it this way because I think the deeper thing is actually really problematic. It's you mentioned, Roger, the reductionism. One type of reductionism is to say there's only one thing. The other type is to say there's a handful of things, but my favorite thing is the most important one. So being able to understand the co-arising and non-reduced process is actually really important.
1: If I can introduce a concept here, Daniel, I find I have a neologism which is omnideterminism. Everything determines everything. And I think that's what you're speaking to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I might more usually talk about omni-influence, that everything is influencing Mm -hmm. everything, but not in a way that is absolutely deterministic because...
1: Nice refinement. Thank you.
2: There are things that are outside of hard determinism still that influence the net result of what happens. Also, when we say omni, we mean in the direction of all-inclusive, but we can never actually know we're being all-inclusive. In fact, we can know for sure that we aren't being. That's actually important. I can know (laughs) for sure that I'm not being all-inclusive because computationally it would be impossible. So the framing of the meta-crisis we often talk about involves, like a frame I'll use often is from Marvin Harris's work, but to understand a civilization, you can think of it in terms of these three areas, it's infrastructure, it's social structures, and it's superstructure. It's infrastructure, it's all the technologies, the whole tech stack, and all the modes of material development and like that. The social structures are all the collective agreement fields, everything from the system of governance, the law, the institutions that mediate it. And the superstructure is the religion, the cultural ideology, the values, the definition of the good life. So the, the superstructure is kind of the Spirituality, psychology, interiority of the people at the collective level. And so, of course, we're always talking about that. So, I think seeing the top level frame of how all those fit together is worthwhile. So, if people haven't, um, I'll just reference, talked about it in a bunch of places. A uh, good friend, Nate Hagens, who's a very good thinker on specifically the relationship between the environment and energy and the financial system. He and I just did a five part series on his. Podcast. And in the fourth part, we do a kind of an overview of the metacrisis that covers this. The third part, unintentionally, just because it came up, we entering how does one like emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually deal with the reality of the metacrisis given that there's so much to care about beyond what we feel like we have a sense of agency about. Those are ones that people might find interesting. The fifth one, we talk about frameworks to think through solutions competently. So with all that prefacing. I'll say some things here that I think maybe have not said as much other places that are relevant to what in the interiority of human psyches and experiences and cultures is a key or are key drivers of the problems of the world. I want to mention how many things there are that we probably have no fucking clue about that are really critical, just just to give a tiny couple examples. We know that there are a lot of species that have gone extinct at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times the background rate of extinction since the Industrial Revolution as a result of human activity. Those species are not just in the world externally. There is a similar biodiversity loss and species extinction in the microbiome of the human being. And the microbiome of the human being produces some of the necessary chemicals for us to work. Our genome doesn't actually produce all the things. Some aspects of the macrophage binding protein and various things like that are not adequately coded in the genome without a microbiome. And so, extinction of some of those is pretty humongous. It's like deleting chunks of our genome, right? And But if you start having ubiquitous antibiotics and chlorine in the water and pesticide exposure and all those types of things, so how much? When you realize that somewhere between fifty and eighty percent of the major monoamine neurotransmitters, like dopamine, serotonin, and GABA, are produced by the microbiome in the gut, and that how you think, how you perceive, what you believe, how happy you are, what you your orientation towards violence will largely be a result of that, how much of what seems like a spiritual crisis in the world is the result of the effects of the unintended consequences of our kind of war on bacteria and biology and actually destroying part of the code set that makes us able to be us. That's not something that people often would think of when they're thinking of the spiritual drivers of a thing, but that is really important. If we look at the Anthropocene, at the human built world, there are so many aspects of the human built world that built a world we did not genetically evolve in, we're not genetically adapted to, that makes us misfit to our own being in important ways. Obviously, for the 200,000 or 300,000 years of Homo sapien history and a couple million years of hominid history. We always lived in tribes. There was no such thing as not living in tribes until extremely recently, but we've been this way long enough that it seems like the nuclear family household is the most obvious thing and the only thing that could ever be. And we can't really imagine anything else. And yet it, evolutionarily, we evolved to fit in tribes. So all the shit about attachment theory we, we, we evolved to have attachment to like 150 people, like strong attachments and where our life literally depended upon them. We couldn't get our, the, the, the person who knows medicine is the only person who knows medicine. I'm not going to interact with other people. So I can't just have a market opportunity to go to anybody. So I actually need people and they need me. So I can't be a shithead to them. So I can't, And everybody's going to see what everybody does. So I can't lie and get away with it. So like everything about psychology, attachment theory Bonding, the ideas of codependence and interdependence were totally different, and we evolved in that setting, right? So then we get birth control, and we're like, "Oh, sex doesn't have to equal reproduction anymore." Even though forever, sex always equals the possibility of reproduction. We evolved to have our neurochemistry mean sex equals the possibility of reproduction. We put in birth control. Our neurochemistry and our evolutionary biology didn't just change overnight, but now we're acting in a way where it's like, as if it doesn't mean that thing, but a huge part of our whole being is responding that way. So the reason I bring this up is if we were to try to comprehensively
3: list all of the things that are conditioning our psyches in ways that they did not evolve
2: to process and that are not optimal for us at an individual thriving, a community thriving or a global thriving it would be, we this podcast would take days. So that's a big topic. I just want to. Yes. I say that because if I say anything else first, I'm concerned that people over norm on that as the thing. And then again, lose observation to all the things and complexity of all things. So if I wanted to speak to something as the thing, it would be the nature of mind it makes us lose orientation, complexity, and the interconnectivity of all the things. So if I, if I was going to try to say, what is the psychological generator function of the metacrisis? One, I think, as good a way of saying it as I could is kind of its not exactly the way David Bohm said it, but it's derived from the way I heard him when he said the problems of the world result from a fragmented consciousness that sees the world as a bunch of parts and doesn't see the wholeness of things. And he talked about wholeness and the implicate order. And can we perceive through that wholeness? And obviously we know he was a student of Einstein's and Einstein said, it's an optical delusion of consciousness to believe there are separate things. There is one thing that we call universe and that we have to work to develop our perception. So some of the problems in the world happen by being, by intentionally advantaging some things at the expense of other things. We know it'll cause an expense. So we're advantaging our country at the expense of another country in a war, which means our people, our land, our riches, or whatever at the expense of that for those people. That obviously means we're able to separate the world enough to be able to think about this trade-off of good for these ones Mm -hmm. And even though we know it's bad for these ones, okay, because we separate the interconnectedness of everything. And a country doing that to another country or in a relationship, a person doing that to another person, thinking they can possibly win a fight and someone they love actually not get their needs met. And that equals a good life for them somehow, which is fucking ridiculous idea or at the level of corporations or anything else. Or humans with regard to the biosphere or other animals, we can advantage ourselves at their expense, which obviously a factory farm and an industrial fishing fleet are not good for those animals, are not good for the oceans, are not good for the people working on them in poor conditions. The other problems in the world is where we didn't know that we're causing the harm, right? So we can either benefit something at the expense of something else knowingly, or we can benefit something at the harm of something else not knowing. So conflict theory and mistake theory. And the real politic assessment of humans is the problems in the world are because we are dumb and nasty, right? Like roughly, if you want to make it very simple, dumb is we cause problems that we didn't anticipate and nasty is we cause problems that we knew
3: Mm -hmm.
2: were going to happen. And so the, how do we enlighten humans has to deal with both the dumb and nasty part, right? If we're talking, if we're talking about how do we have the, not, not just how do you Affect human behavior through different rewards and deterrence and social norms and systems of law, but through people wanting something different, having an internal motivational basis. It would be can we expand the circle of care where they care about more? That's even the nasty part. And can we expand the complexity of process where they can actually calculate their effects so that they are not unintentionally harming things more? That's the
3: deal with the dumb part. But similarly, there, if I'm Thinking about CO2 and how critical it is to get it down, but I'm not thinking about ocean dead zones from nitrogen affluent
2: using nitrogen fertilizer to grow more crops that will sequester more CO2 seems like a good idea, even though it's going to cause this other externalized issue. So again, my ability to separate the ocean dead zones and the CO2 is what's causing that unintentional harm, right? Or thinking about that Facebook will be some cool system for people being able to tag photos and get to know each other, not thinking about what its effect on democracy will be with that particular ad model.
3: I would say all the problems look like people, all the problems come from harm happening
2: somewhere as a result of human choice, but the choice was motivated by someone trying to benefit something. So they're all based on trade-offs. So it's either I'm trying to benefit myself now at my own future expense addiction and compulsiveness. So the parts conflict can even be within oneself, right? I'm trying to benefit my people, my religion, my nation, my political party, whatever, at the expense of the other one. So great. You get your political party elected, you polarize the population worse. Next time they'll swing back harder and you're addressing anything other than increasing polarization. Or I... I'm seeking to benefit things and the harm I'm causing elsewhere. I just didn't know. I didn't know that leachate was going to cause that pollution over there or whatever the other thing is. So, when Bohm was talking about the fragmented consciousness, it was both at the level of aware of the connectedness and care about the connectedness. And so, really, the key is seeing reality as parts, right? Seeing reality as a bunch of separated parts leads to being able to care about a part and seek to advantage it in a way that causes harm to other things and then cascade effects of other agents doing this similar stuff. And so you get cumulative harm effects and you get escalating arms races. So not being able to perceive stuff as a bunch of separated parts, but perceiving everything in relationship to everything else, perceiving everything as a part of an interconnected whole where your ability to benefit that thing had to mean both caring about everything that it's connected to and being able to think through everything that's connected to, to come up with a strategy that is omni-beneficial or as close to that as possible. And that where you made a mistake in it, you're also ongoingly aware and working to correct it. I would say from the psychological perspective, that's probably as deep a thing as we can say. And even stuff like, but aren't people, wouldn't wouldn't we say impulsiveness and selfishness and addiction are even deeper than that? Because obviously all of the environmental harm is happening because people are buying too much shit to get a hit, keep up with the Joneses or get a hit of something. Well, it's still the same thing right like it is still the thing of that their future self is being harmed for their momentary self because their momentary self feels fucked up enough that it thinks that it needs to get ahead. So the parts conflict, the theory of trade-off starts within the self between the parts of the self. The Jungian parts reconciliation then would be the basis for being able to also have a wholeness of self in relationship with the wholeness of world.
0: Yeah, let me let me a couple of things. Given that And I've listened to uh, you talk about these issues a lot. And sometimes I'm just left with just, oh, we are so fucked, you know. But given that the solution of survivability as our current species on this, our home, uh, seems to be ignorance and just being bad actors. Do you feel that enough of us, if there's any kind of hope or sense that enough of us can evolve to a level where we can recognize this fractured and recognize what we're doing enough to keep us together as a human family connected to the whole so that we can survive this, this choke point in our evolutionary history?
2: I don't think there is much of a human family to
0: keep together that is
2: anything other than an abstract idea at this point. That some people hold, and many people don't even
3: hold, that's an ideal maybe. -hmm I think it, the question of, is it possible to make it through the issues that the world is facing today? the whole
2: plurality of issues that are unprecedented historically because we hadn't had centuries of industrial tech bringing us up to planetary boundaries and we hadn't had exponential tech where even small number of actors could fuck everything up so quickly. And we didn't have a world that had so much fragility given that we could have massive catastrophic harm from so many different vectors from synthetic bio created pandemics and from AI autonomous drone weapons and from climate change and from, chemical planetary boundaries and from scaling war, to make it through, we have to avoid all of those. To fail, we only have to have any of them happen. And our track record doesn't look good, right? If you look back at the history of empires at all, the history of war and environmental destruction is a pretty big part of that story. We don't seem to be really noble stewards of power. So as we're getting exponentially more power, and we've usually used our power to do power games with each other, meaning destroy each other and in ways that harm the environment, is there any way that we can steward exponential power in a finite space? I would say it takes a step function. Like it will take something significant that is more than just the continuation of whatever good aspects the enlightenment created or something like that. In the huge shift after World War II, it was a big shift. We made a whole new world system. But the answer was still... Extract more from nature even faster, make more money and make more tech. Like the Bretton Woods world system was a, a, a world system, but more increase for everybody was still a somewhat easier thing to do than when you're hitting planetary boundaries and you have to say, no, we actually have to reduce consumption across everybody, where a lot of people are like, no, I would rather not reduce my consumption, go to war and have less people. And I think I can win. Like this, it's hard. The situation we're in right now is unprecedented at a global level in such deep ways, right? So do I think it is possible? To make it through. I think the question, is it possible to make it through without great harm doesn't even make sense because we're in species extinction and war today. Like Great harm is happening today. People are being killed in Ukraine. People are being killed in Armenia and Azerbaijan. People are being killed all over because of these issues and species are going extinct today. So we're already in the great harm phase. I almost know adolescents don't have body dysmorphia in the Instagram, et cetera, world. Like that's so, so we're already in that right now. Do I think we can make it through without catastrophes where hundreds of millions of people die? Is one question. Do I think we can make it through where there are any humans left? Do I think we can make it through where there are humans and something that isn't just a totally scorched earth? These are they're all different questions. The answer can we make it through without the catastrophes intensifying? No. No. No chance.
0: So so, so given all this, the, the question comes up, how then sh- should we live, given the truth of
3: what well, you're communicating?
0: This next part is critical. Can we
2: make it through without the catastrophes intensifying? No, they're going to intensify because no matter what we do today, there is no inactable path to preventing the extreme weather events that climate change alone is going to mediate. There's a lot of things like that. And then the human migration that's going to come from that. We can, if we do the very best things, we can make it less bad. But there is also no we. There is no we that is a unified acting group, right? What China's interests are and what the U.S.'s interests are, what the individual, what the left and right within the U.S.'s interests are, what the individual U.S. people versus the elites in it, they're not the same. And so the whole, like, one of the biggest mistakes I made growing up was I always thought in this royal we that like humanity thoughtfully was all reading Bucky's operating manual for Spaceship Earth. And we're all, you know, thinking about UN charters and looking at the earth from the astronaut's perspective and hearing Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. And of course, we want to do the right and smart and good thing for everybody. The the thing that some people think is really good, the other people think is really horrible and when you realize that the enactment gets really hard right is the legality of abortion protecting women's freedoms and rights or is it murdering infants you'll see the most severe ideological differences on what is good they create a basis for massive conflict and you see that across so many things right that's why i said there isn't a human family to hang together like that's an, that's an aspirational thing do i think That if there is already a trajectory of some people who care about not just their own political party or their own nation or their own race or even their own species, but care pretty considerately and are working in service of that, that there are increasing number of people who have both more care, more capacity and more interconnectivity. And they can then also work with other people who maybe don't care about all of that, but in increasingly good coordination for the things they do care about. Yes, that's happening, right? There's a good thing in emergence that is happening. Do I think that that could be sufficient to make it through without total extinction or scorched earth? Yes, totally. Do I think it can make it through without the catastrophes intensifying? No, they will intensify before even on the best course. Do I think that it's a given that we make it through? No, which means we are no matter what in a phase of increasing intensity ahead. And with, I think, both what it takes to avoid all the catastrophes is deep enough change to the world systems that it's like that Bohmian thing that we are neither harming each other on purpose or accident, which means a kind of more universal omni-consideration where things like a human family is actually a, a real thing. So I think in order to not have it get much worse, changes have to happen at a deep enough level that it gets much better. So I do think there's something like a pretty hard fork. And I think it can go either way. And I think it is not determined. And I think it is increasingly potent and hard over the next while in figuring that out. So, with that, then, the question how do we live as the frame is I can't imagine a context in which one's choices could matter
1: more. Indeed, it gives a whole nother level and depth and dimension to. The choices we make and the priorities we serve, and uh, how we live our lives and offer our lives, and so what? What are some of the parameters for an effective, contributing life that you see? A
2: few more
3: resources that I'll offer here. Another short, little blog I wrote on how to live a meaningful life, which was
2: intentionally not answering the question what is the meaning of life which we discussed <laughs> earlier
3: but it said a meaningful life and it's just it's a way of talking about it there's lots of ways of talking about it that's not
2: particularly better than lots of other ways but I, there's something that is kind of comprehensive and kind of elegant about it so i offer it and it was looking at the mode of being the mode of doing and the mode of becoming all being relevant And defining all of them in terms of beauty. And that thing we said earlier that truth and goodness matter because beauty is.
3: So, there it said the mode of being at its essence is about really deeply taking in the beauty of reality and
2: appreciating it, giving gratitude for it, honoring it, loving it, you know, all those things. It's the essence of what the mode of being is really about. And that the mode of doing, is about being in service to the beauty of reality, protecting it, adding to it. And the mode of becoming is deepening the capacity for being and doing that I can appreciate ever more fully and that I can add to it ever more fully. And that a meaningful life is a recursive relationship between those three. And if what I'm doing isn't arising out of everything's fucked up, so I have to fix everything, but it's arising out of perceiving, working on this hunger issue because we're perceiving the utter meaningfulness and beauty of these kids or these people in their life and the importance of it. And, the, and so then the doing, the desire to serve it and protect arises not from the perception of all the badness, but actually arises from the perception of the beauty from which the good, which also means the bad, is framed at all right? So the thing that really is terrible and pisses us off is because something that is beautiful and sacred is being harmed, which then brings us back to there's something that we actually love and have devotion to. So we trace it back to that and say, how do I be in service there? So the doing must arise from the being. And the becoming is I don't just want to perceive the beauty I currently see. I want to perceive ever deeper dimensions of things that I had missed. You know, I want to ask what aspects of the of reality are important and beautiful that I'm missing, that other people are noticing, that I'm not honoring as fully as I could. Um, and then similarly with our doing, <clears throat> where do I have frameworks for what I'm, where is what I'm doing coming from ego and trauma and wounding? Where have I been running a strategy so long? If I stopped and thought about it from scratch, I might come up with something better. You know, like I want to be deepening the... doing as well. So I think if one relates to appreciating the beauty of life, adding to it, deepening the capacity for both, that's a nice framework to start. And then there was another resource put on there called Dharma Inquiry, which is more personal because that's obviously true for everybody. The Dharma Inquiry gets more into specific Things One is bothered by and is inspired by and has aptitude at and is called to, to have a sense of what is your unique relationship to that is your own Dharma with it. I realized that there's something both very beautiful about the kind of Bodhisattva direction and something that is incomplete about a certain direction of it. I was incredibly influenced by Valve, of the Bodhisattva, and the may I become whatever is needed. And when you look around and try to perceive what is needed and try to develop within yourself what can offer something there. I remember the, the first time I actually read it was in Alex Gray's art book, the I think Sacred Mirrors, and he had the Avalokiteshvara painting, and then he had this poem next to it. It was so beautiful. And it said something like, where there is thirst, may a rain fall upon the people, and may I, may I myself become that rain. Where there is hunger, may I be transformed into the food and put near them. Where there is illness, may I become the medicine. You know, wherever there is need
3: of any kind, may I
2: become what is needed. I think that helps one to recognize that what they love is deeper to who they are than who they think they are. Beautiful. Because I think I like these things and I don't like these things and I'm good at these things and not these things. But oh, I can't help with that because I'm not a, a legal scholar or I'm not a construction worker, or I'm not a whatever it is. And yet it's like, but if that's the thing that is most needed and would help what you care about most, can you become something that you are not? And I've had many times where there was something that I was not good at that I actually really identified as a thing I would never want to be good at. <laughs> And realized that it actually mattered to what I cared about enough that if I held that limited identity, I was not in maximum service to what I claimed to care about. And I had to get like, I, I care about what I care about so long as it fits with my identity easily. Or I've got to transcend the
3: identity. So that's what I like about the vow of the Bodhisattva. But where it's missing something is, I really
2: am not Equally good at all the things that are needed. Nor can I do all of the things, even if I try. There's a lot of people have to do all the things. So, if medicine work is needed, and if economics change is needed, and if care of the individual people and animals is needed, as well as macro systemic thinking about systems to do that, not only what is most needed, but what is most needed that my being is well developed to be able to be in service to. Is important, yes. and so yes. the Dharma questions are trying to help hone that for people.
1: Beautiful, and and you're pointing to the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves in order to orient ourselves to be most effective instruments of service, or for the and in the bodhisattva aspiration for the welfare and awakening of all. I, I really think that probably that bodhisattva aspiration may be one of the highest ideals in mind is. Human mind has ever come up with, and such a beautiful thing. And you're pointing now to the questions we ask. Which the first question that emerges is well, what, what can I do? But then you're pointing to the idea that there's uh, there are questions deeper than that. What's the most effective thing I can do? And de- and along with that, the qu- the question, or the con actually, what am I called to do? And deeper still in your implication is the is question, how can I live my life so as to be an optimal instrument of service? And each of those is, I think, better thought of as a as a cone or a wisdom question. And I would draw the distinction saying a conceptual question is, you know, is it raining outside? Take a look. No. End of question. But, but wisdom questions are more like cones. Every time you ask them, they have the potential for taking you deeper into the question, deeper into life, deeper into yourself. And So you're pointing us towards the real, the wisdom questions of our time.
3: I would also say that
2: almost every value or principle lives in a dialectical relationship with another value or principle that is complementary, but they might seem almost opposite. And that without holding them together, the full version of just that one thing, the reducto ad absurdum of it, actually becomes evil. So this is the everything can be a medicine or everything can be a poison. Topic. So, what is my unique self calling? What is that which I can offer the world based on the unique set of experiences and capacities I have that no one else could offer? That if I spend my life doing things other than that, that other people could do, the most novel offering that I have doesn't occur? That's a deep and important and beautiful question, but taken to its extreme, it'll make you a total shithead because fucking do the dishes when you need to do the dishes. No, it's not your unique self. The only thing that you can do, like anybody can do the dishes or take out the trash, but like, damn, the, a lot of life is just doing the dishes and take out the trash. And maybe the unique self that you have is unexpressible, infinitesimal qualities with which you show up to those things, you know? So the what is uniquely mine to do that no one else can do? And what fucking needs done that nobody wants to do. I'll just show up to you got to hold those together. Right. Because also on the other side, if you always just say, what is nobody, what is the shittiest job that nobody wants to do? Let me show up to that, which is an incredibly ennobling question, incredibly beautiful question. You can also end up failing at some unique self dharmas and capacities you could have because of only orienting that way. And so Every principle and every virtue needs held in a dialectical relationship and not overnormed as absolute.
1: Yeah, and this is the ancient concept of the interdependence of virtues, that they require each other and complement one, one, one another. And you, I think you're also pointing to the contextual nature of our inquiries, that we have to keep the context as well. So, again, uh, beautiful, beautiful reflections and deepening and expanding our that I see you pointing us to.
0: Yeah. And I've, I've just felt that we've been spending, I don't know, X amount of time in the heart of philosophy. And I feel a connection with fifth century Athens and all of that stuff that started long ago in another land. And it's still, it's still churning in a universe that can produce a you and a me. Uh, can't be all bad. And I, Feel deeply moved and deeply renewed in my commitment to do my little things, you know, whatever that calling might be. And I think I pretty much found that, but also to shampoo my dog and take out the trash and, you know, wipe the counters and that sort of thing.
2: You know, and you say it can't be all bad. It's funny because so I focus on the meta crisis, which is like all the most fucked up stuff that could be all together. Kind of seems like that, but it's not really what I focus on. I mean, it's. In appreciation and love of this world and life, there's the desire to protect it and so paying attention to things that need protecting. But where does the motivation come from? The motivation doesn't come from things being fucked up. the motivation comes from the wonder of it, right from the beauty of it. like I've had I know you you both talk about bringing the philosophic concepts into daily practice on this show a lot and you know I've had a lot of practices throughout my life in terms of types of meditation and types of inquiry and whatever but like I, w- I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do pretty much every morning is I just look out the window at the trees
3: and I just watch the trees move in the wind for a little bit and I don't I don't have to try to care about them
2: or try to find them beautiful they're just fucking beautiful and there's a happiness that comes just watching that. And then there's a gratitude to be alive and consciousness, you know, arising again, and there's a happiness to be on this planet. And then there is a, because of the happiness, that comes from just the perception of the beauty of it. I don't need that much for myself, right? There's not an unhappiness. that needs me to do a bunch of stuff. And then there's this gratitude that I, I like, I was sleeping. This, con- this Daniel consciousness
3: wasn't here. And then it boots again. And now it's here. And I think about when Daniel's dead, the consciousness that will be perceiving the world
2: and falling in love for the first time and climbing trees and reading Hafez and Rumi for the first time, it's all the things. And I can't not feel connected to those consciousnesses a hundred and a thousand years from now. Like I can't not feel what it feels like to perceive through those eyes. And it's, I'm actually not trying to get it to go anywhere. I just want that kids get to keep experiencing falling in love with trees for the first time. And mothers get to keep falling in love with their kids and people get to fall in love and do poetry for the first time and get heartbroken and all the things The po- like it is intrinsically already meaningful without going anywhere. And it's already beautiful. And, you know, one of the other things I know you've know, talked about is peak experiences. And one of the things I always felt is once you have had one of them, like for me i remember i remember discreetly i've talked about before <laughs> there was this one time i was watching a sunset writing poetry to nature and watching a sunset as a teenager and i remember the sunset was just so incredibly beautiful and i remember thinking if i had the choice if there is a spirit before this life if i had the choice to come here and incarnate and go through whatever painful things that i've went through my whole life just to get to have this one experience of color and vision and the wind and the insects in this moment would totally do it. Like I would take every pain in my whole life to have had this experience as opposed to no experience. And then I'm like, I've had the, I've had so many of these experiences and one of them is worth incarnating for. Mm. I've had so many of them. And so it's like the fact that I will probably have more of them is gravy. And it's like a ridiculous beauty and abundance but that every that future life gets to keep having those and that other people get to have more of those is kind of more what I'm motivated by.
0: And they make us better persons when we experience those things. That it, it 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 shifts, you know, something happens. Maybe just a little bit, but something happens in a positive thing and shifts in our soul and our interiors, and maybe we behave a little a little better or a lot better. I'm not sure. I think the what's in it
2: for me thing chills out you know and it's not that it doesn't reboot because we're complex people with lots of parts and there will be a pain body that reboots and so it's not like enlightenment is a static thing and you have a satori and then you never have a pain
3: body boot again it does but there's something about even just thinking about it and just being like there could have been no i no experience at all and there's experience and there have been such amazing ones and
2: And I feel this pretty much with every difficulty or trauma, too, is like when you've done the healing work with it, you don't still feel messed up by the trauma or the pain, but you do feel ongoingly benefited by the lessons. And it's kind of like a lot of people don't have the resources or know how to do the healing, so they never get the lessons and they're just always affected by the pain, and that's a bummer. But if one kind of has the resources, knows how to work on it, then the pain is temporary and the gifts are lasting. And it's like this just beneficial asymmetry, like this beautiful asymmetry where it's like, yeah, I just, I, I'm a yes to the whole thing. I would say yes to the whole thing.
1: Uh, and there's, there's a beautiful couple of lines that came out of San Quentin prison project grip guiding rage into pain, which uh, the people work very intensely with, with people, many of them lifers, many of them have been murderers and work on life transformation. Their ideals, the bodhisattva for aspiration. The commitment is even if I stay in my in the, this prison for the rest of my life, I'm going to do what I can to help people. And one and one of them after after the and is a very intensive exploration of their pain and the trauma they've both caused and received. And these are very traumatized people. And there's a video of one of these sessions in which one of the one of the person suddenly, suddenly lights out, uh, lights up, and says, "Oh, I get it. Hurt people, hurt people, and healed people, heal people." It's like, oh, oh, it's so beautiful.
3: Yeah, they're both they're both self-propagating. Yeah,
0: I would love to explore that with you, Daniel. We've gone long and far and deep, or maybe that's the wrong word. To explore the the darkness and the addiction and the way out of that and just what you said, Roger hurt people, hurt people and heal people, heal people and that's uh, maybe that's a good place to wrap it for this evening.
2: I really enjoyed the conversation with both of you. I think that the this podcast where you're exploring these topics and sharing it with people is a really beautiful service, and I'm honored to gonna to be here with you.
1: Oh, it's such a delight, Daniel, and it's such a such a gift to be able to <laughs> investigate at this depth and co-explore. So thank you so much for this gift to everyone who listens to the podcast, and thank you so much for your life's work. It's truly a gift. Crisis.
0: We to get to all. share this with thousands and thousands of God knows how many people. That's tremendous. That's just tremendous. If there is a
2: second time we come back to and explore that hurt people hurt people, that there is some auto-poetic trauma force almost, and that there's also some kind of auto-poetic healing or integrative force, But if you wanted to think of the light and dark sides of the force, that's actually kind of a good way of thinking of it, is the auto-propagation of those things. And we, we wanted to explore that sometime, maybe also if the listeners have thoughts or questions or topics coming from this that can inform it, we can uh, get to those next time too.
1: Great. Well, we'll, we hereby extend an invitation to listeners to let us know the questions you have for Daniel. And I think you're implicitly suggesting you're open to coming back. And we, of course, would love that. And I I know how listeners would too. So that's beautiful.
0: Regards to your father and mom, if they're still uh, on this plane, and if not, regards to them anyway. Okay. Tell tell him they, they deeply touched one old guy in Louisiana. Made a difference for him.
2: I'll uh, send this podcast (laughs) to them when it
1: publishes. (laughs) Daniel, thank you so much.
0: Take care. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.